This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Elman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, Bard MBA's Hector Aguirre speaks with Pavel Ramirez, founder of Plural. Pavel, Katie actually um, is the one that puts together the impact report. It's an extension of the Bard MBA program, which is a program, uh, an MBA program in sustainability. Uh, And so everybody within the program is very mission oriented, right? Whether they are uh, trying to work on climate related issues or social related issues, everybody within the program, you know, has something that they're uh, chasing. And when, you know, as a uh, as as an immigrant myself, when I saw your name pop up, I was just like, you know, what what is this? And I, I was extremely interested in a lot of what I saw on your social media and your website resonated with me. So I figured maybe if you could start off by just telling us about Plural and some of this inspiration behind it. For sure. So so Plural. So for so long, I've been trained to believe that who I am, my identity, me authentically was unprofessional. I was trained to believe that when I entered the workplace, I needed to strip away who I was into the singular person. In fact, I was trained to believe that I needed to be just like everybody else. I need to stay under the radar in order to be successful, right? Singular version of myself. So plural or plural, if you take away the W, just means more than one. And that's what I've wanted to be. I wanted to embrace all parts of my authenticity, these multifaceted parts of me. Like, yeah, we're all employees. We all have a job. We all do something to make money, but that shouldn't be at the expense of our identities. So I want to inspire people via representation that they could be successful while still holding on to who they are. Got it. Got it. And so that that's the inspiration behind it. So can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, there's, it seems like there's multi, multi avenues of generating revenue. Can you just kind of dive into each one of those and, and explain to us the business model a little bit better? For sure. It's, it's fascinating because when I first started the brand, I wanted to create a lifestyle brand with, with me selling art and apparel. The idea for me was like, all right, well, maybe if I create t-shirts with uh, uh, culturally relevant words or phrases or art that represented the culture and celebrated it, it would start the conversation that I wanted around professionalism. One of the first designs that I did or had done with another artist was of the Yankees. It was of, because I don't know if you know the Yankees, but they have a policy that they don't allow facial hair on players. In addition, they also don't allow certain traditionally black hairstyles on players as well. There's a bunch of different stories of uh, Yankees players signing contracts and then shaving their dreads, shaving their locks, their, their, their beards, et cetera. And it's all around this idea of like what a professional is supposed to look like, but there's no correlation to like what hairstyle you have and the, the amount of home runs you hit. It, it's ridiculous, but it's not just the Yankees. Like these same policies are implemented in financial institutions. Till this day, financial institutions for men, they make you shave. When I was in high school, they made me shave. When I was in high school, they didn't allow me to have certain like traditionally black hairstyles. So 
yes, it started the conversation. And yeah, I sold a few t-shirts and I sold a few art prints, but nothing was more powerful in shifting the conversation and signing brand deals and building these amazing B2B relationships than when I started the podcast called Quien Duetas. Because when I started the podcast, it went beyond just imagining what these iconic figures experience would be if they were their authentic selves. I started sharing real people's stories and experiences. And for the first time ever, there was a face and a name to some of these workplace experiences because they often go untold. And if they are told, they're told anonymously. Got it. Got it. So it's the podcast that really kind of gave you the platform to catapult yourself into other avenues. So um, I understand there's some sort of DEI workplace initiative that you take place. If you could dig into that a little bit deeper. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I dare you to read any article or story about the future of work, about something about workplace experience. In fact, I just read one from Sheryl Sandberg's organization, Lean In, right? And there's always these anonymous quotes that says like, black executive said, Latina executive said, immigrant employee said, and I'm just like, yo, why is everyone anonymous? I've even asked some of these organizations. I was like, why, why is it like this? And they responded was like, well, this is the only way that we can build trust within the community for them to open up about what their experience was like. But the problem is that when it's anonymous, people don't believe it. In fact, I've gone on interviews and you get to that point where the recruiter asks you for the salary expectations. I've had interviews where I shared Glassdoor data and they're like, use that with a grain of salt. Anyone could have written that. I could have wrote that. They don't believe it. So I wanted to put a face and name to these stories. And for the first time, we're actually publishing these stories at scale. So if you think about it for organizations, this is valuable insight. For the first time ever, their employees are speaking out publicly, openly about their workplace experience, not only the challenges, but what they would like to see for them to stay long-term. So now organizations are looking at me not as a, as a guy that's making t-shirts and selling art, but more so as a, a leader with a valuable insight that they can't even, despite the, the, the huge salaries that they're paying their employees, they can't pay them enough to share this information. So it starts with a podcast in gathering these stories, but then I use these stories to, to then influence the content and resources that I partner with organizations and bring directly to them. Right now, it's just me, but eventually what we're trying to do next year is launch a tech product to actually educate these organizations and employees at scale. Got it, got it. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I was on my way to work this morning. I was listening to the last episode that you put out with Ayana and uh, you know, it was, it was my first exposure to the podcast and I, I couldn't help but resonate with so many things that she was saying around, you know, what what good leadership and management is like based off her life experiences and then what is the mold of what good leadership and management is like for XYZ organization that she was at and how even, you know, the, the story she shared about having tenure in the military and that and, and you sharing the story about your your uh, your friend and how that didn't translate well within his corporate environment was was extremely interesting so i think that's the common theme especially within within diverse people with uh, diverse people within the workforce which is you know there's there's a constant balancing act 
between, as, as you mentioned, your identity and what you're supposed to be. Can you share a little bit of, about th that sensation itself? Can you describe that a little bit to us and you know, how that's shaped your interaction with your corporate life and entrepreneurship now? Yeah, I mean, up until a certain point, it wasn't a balancing act. Like it just tipped over to the assimilation side. I mean, you, you gotta you gotta think about like a lot of our families, they, the things that they taught us to do was how they learned to survive, right? Like we're told to keep our head down and work, don't stand out, all these things, right? That's because for them standing out was fearful because they might get arrested. Um, speaking out against leadership, against dictatorships that they had to escape from was fearful, right? So the idea of like looking a certain part wasn't necessarily just to fit in and assimilate. It was like literally so I don't die, right? So growing up, my grandfather would tell me like, do you see presidents and CEOs with beards and tattoos and, and earrings and do-rags, right? I understand he was trying to protect me from people's negative perceptions, but he was also trying to tell me to be more like white men if I wanted to be successful because that's the representation that he was pointing to. That said, when I entered corporate, a lot of us go through this phase of like the mannequin phase is what I call it. Like we look around and we choose a leader. I chose my manager. I was like, I'm going to buy his exact outfit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Head to toe. I was like every color, all that shit, right? The challenge is that it never stops there. For me, I turned into a full-blown actor. Like I was creating scripts. <laughs> I, was, I was literally creating scripts. I was like, they're going to ask me this. I'm going to respond this way. Um, I'm gonna have a follow-up question for them. It was to the point where like, I would dedicate days out of my week to study white popular American culture. Like I would binge watch shows like Insecure just to be able to feel relatable. But the thing that everyone realizes that it only lasts for so long. Like you may look the part, you may act the part, but people are still gonna hit you with microaggressions. Like people are still, people still told me my PowerPoint slide looks ghetto. Can you please fix that? People are like, oh my God, that's where you went to, that's where you go out on the weekends? Oh my God, is it safe up there? I would still get labeled aggressive, unapproachable, unfriendly. So I promise I you Dykeman is safe. I promise you Dykeman is safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, listen, like in almost 100 episodes of the Game this podcast, what I've realized is that everyone reaches a point where they're just like, listen, this is a waste of time. Assimilation is a waste of time. They still don't accept me. Right? The problem is that people reach that at 50 years old, 40 years old. I'm like, what if I can cut that time frame down 10, 15, 20 years? Because everyone realizes when, it, when, when they are their most authentic self, that's when they do their best work because they're not wasting time binge watching shows that they don't care about. No, that's, uh, <laughs> that's extremely powerful and once again, relatable because it's something that earlier on in my career, I've also struggled with as well. So I'm glad that you're, you're, you're giving uh, folks a platform to try to shorten that time frame. So so thank you for that. Um, the, yeah, and, another... I'm sorry. And, and just, to go, just to go back to you about, because um, you asked me about like revenue stream and kind of like what was going forward as well. Like right. um, if you think about like a lot of these, like if, even if you look at like DEI training right now, or a lot of the trainings that happens within corporate America from like a learning development, but also a compliance standpoint, everyone has taken sexual harassment training, unconscious bias training. Let's be honest, we all hate it. We click through it. We're like, who made up these stories? I also ask myself, who made up these stories? Like, because every episode on my podcast, people are like, I, this is the first time I'm speaking to this in a public forum. 
So I often think about like, if people are telling me these stories for the first time, who's creating the stories for these trainings? Right? So what I wanna do with these stories right now, like right now I'm, I'm educating organizations and employees via speaking engagements, but eventually that tech product that I wanna launch is reimagining what a lot of these trainings will look like with actual experiences. Because okay. I can now point after the training, you can say like, oh, you don't believe this is real? Like listen to this person's story on episode 30, for example. Um, so I wanna reimagine a lot of the compliance trainings that are mandated in a lot of these fields, um, mandated everywhere, really, whether it is state or federal or like highly encouraged by organizations, but also from a learning and development standpoint, taking it beyond compliance for people that look like me and experience these microaggressions, a lot of us don't know how to react. A lot of us don't know how to communicate the emotions that we're feeling at the moment to have a productive conversation. So I also want to teach our community the soft skills needed to navigate corporate spaces as well. So that's kind of the future is kind of like compliance plus learning and development via educational technology. Is your thought process behind that uh, exactly the, the issue you pointed about uh, around anonymity and making it feel unauthentic and giving real voices to real scenarios during these trainings so that they actually do what they're supposed to do and, and drive the the impact that they're supposed to drive is that kind of the thought process behind that i want to create empathy because again i feel like when it's anonymous people don't believe it when i was at meta there was an there was an article that came out from five anonymous black employees that said facebook doesn't care about black people i remember white coworkers literally turning to me and said like this is made up right there's no way this is real like it's meta we have like <laughs> insert all these benefits Again, when, when it's anonymous, people don't believe it. So I want to create empathy by showing you that it's real. And, and maybe the story that you're reading is a coworker that you had no idea experienced this. Not only that, but I want to educate people in a way where they won't just like click through things. And I think talking about it from the perspective of not necessarily just bias, but just like what is professionalism, I think would be helpful. So do you, do you envision this empathy-based training platforms spreading nationwide or what, what's your, yeah, what's your growth aspirations with that, with that next step of, of your ventures? A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, nationwide, but I'll probably start with the relationships that I've already been cultivating right now. If I look at the business model, if you will, like when we first launched, we were a B2C company, but right now probably 90% of our revenue is coming directly from organizations, not individuals. For example, I, I've done speaking engagements this year. When we think about these speaking engagements, they're, they're really educational around what is professionalism and then a little bit of bias. So I've done, I've done Google twice, I've done Molson Coors, I've done Amazon, Sonos, Spotify, Twitter. I mean, like 20 of them, right? So these initial speaking engagements went really well. They were like, wow, I never thought about it like this. All right, cool. Well, like second step, maybe third step is like, well, I have technology now that you can replace the compliance and learning development training that you already are paying for. We can do it better. Yeah, it's already, it's already a proven business model because every organization is paying for it. it. Even academic institutions, everyone. I think as long as you have more than a certain number of employees, I just know that we can do it better based on the 
trust that we built with the community where they're literally telling us what happens to them at work. Got it. So, now that that makes a lot of sense, especially when you explain it via empathy, right? That it, I, I feel like that that's what will help people resonate. Um, but you're, you're, you're tackling a big problem here, which is systemic racism, right? Mm -hmm. So um, how do you ensure that your mission is embedded in everything that you do? How do you make sure that you're not losing steam in driving that purpose forward? Yeah, it's, it's a tough question, but I mean, I look at everything that we invest time and resources in and just ask myself the question, like, is this helping to redefine professionalism? Um, and it's not even, I, I'm fascinated that you said the word racism because I think people are scared of that word. And I think a lot of people are scared of bias as well. But in empathy, I also try to empathize people and I remind people that like, we're all biased. I wouldn't say we're all racist, but I, I would say we all, we're all biased. Like me, the do you talk about authenticity in the workplace is bias. It's natural. It's like that instant without thinking about a gut reaction that you have when you see someone. The difference is like, all right, is it gonna impact the action that I take, the next step, right? Like I love going to cafes. I used to go into cafes and say like, yo, if my barista doesn't look like a Brooklyn hipster, I'm not gonna go there. I'm like, this is gonna be a terrible cup of coffee. That's bias, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it takes a certain individual to be self-aware enough to say like, you know what, no, I'm gonna give this little Latina lady that looks like my mom an opportunity to make me a cup of coffee. It may change my whole perspective on it. But for years, I didn't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, it's your defaults, uh, right? Biases are our defaults, right? Yeah, so I, I think being a leader that not only is asking for empathy, but showing empathy and showing that like, hey, I struggle with this too. I may need to take my own training. <laughs> We're all learning this together. It's not easy, but it's something that we all, but there, 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 there are always things that we have to unlearn based on what we've been taught and continue learning about. Okay, great. Well, I, I can appreciate, I can appreciate that. Um, but if we, if we can, I, I wanted to understand, you know, how that jump from, you know, you had, you had this, this perceived picture of success, right? You, you, you were a media executive at, at Meta, you had a good paying job and, and you decided to, to jump, right? So can you talk a little bit about what that move away from quote unquote successful uh, within your lucrative position was like into starting your own business was like for yourself? There were a few pivotal moments where I felt like, damn, this is probably what I have to do. I think it all starts with financial independence though. Like I had a savings account. Um, I'm frugal in many things in life. So I had a savings account that I was like, yo, if they do this one more time, <laughs> I'm out of here. So I got to that point where I felt safe enough to make whatever moves I wanted to. That was one thing. Two, I often ask myself this question and shout out to Tristan Walker, the founder of the walking company he's infamous for like bevel and a couple other companies he asked this question on the podcast he's like what are you uniquely positioned to do i'll be honest like yeah there were tough jobs to get meta TikTok, all these things a lot of people could have done it. it like it's 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 not that difficult 
what I'm doing now is difficult. It takes a very specific type of person to be like passionate about a certain area, but fearless about speaking up and challenging like pretty powerful people, pretty powerful institutions. My mom, the things that I do, she's like, oh my God, please don't do that. Don't do that again, right? And the third part is like, when I do these kind of fearless things, like I started, I just got tired of the resistance from organizations. I'll give you an example about a fearful moment that my mom had, which shouldn't be fearful. And this just speaks about like the, the stupid things we've been trained to believe about corporate and professionalism. Like one day I just woke up, it was Latina Equal Pay Day. I'm like, hmm, what can I do? I was like, let me share my whole salary transparently on LinkedIn. I shared my, my base, my bonus, my signing bonus, my stock options, everything. My mom was like, oh my God, what are you doing? I was like, first of all, there's a federal protection in place that Obama passed. It's not legal. Is it unprofessional? That's for a lot of people to decide. But I remember a director at the company where I was working at said, you shouldn't have done that. You should have handled things internally. This is gonna make your career more difficult. Something, a bunch of different things. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, it's going to make your job more difficult because you're going to have to pay people a little more. It's going to make your job more difficult because you're going to have awkward conversations around why people are paid differently. It's going to be, it's going to be more difficult for you because you're going to have to answer the question around why me, even as a black man, is paid more than women on the team. That's not my problem. But <laughs> I know that what I did is going to help a ton of people. So I'm okay with that awkward, uncomfortableness that, that you described. In fact, my mom says, like, what if this plural thing doesn't work out? What if you want to go back to corporate? Are they going to accept you? I don't know. I can't predict the future. But she's terrified of that. And to be honest, I'm terrified of it too. But again, when you talk about, like, what are you uniquely positioned to do? I don't think a lot of people are that fearless in chasing something as abstract as like redefining professionalism that people tell me I'm delusional for thinking it's ever going to happen. I'm really taken with that. I think a lot of this compliance, that's my word, when you just go along to get along and you just do the work so then you can go home and be yourself again is based on fear and mm -hmm. wanting to not lose your livelihood and i'm wondering everything that you're talking about and wanting to build will it be something that lower wage workers can have access to you know those are the people that are really treated the worst they get paid the worst and they're disrespected the most within their own organizations and by the public you know a lot of it is service work i just feel like if you're at a certain pay level, you're expected to just suck it up because you paid so well. And if you're at a lower pay grade, you're kind of expected to suck it up because this is the best you can get. But how can we, or how can Plural make it better kind of for everyone regardless of your uh, pay grade? Yeah, I mean, one thing we're doing right now is educating folks. You'd be shocked how many people don't even know what professionalism means. Like, have you ever looked it up? I bet most people haven't. And most people are shocked to believe, most people are shocked to learn that it's defined as the skills or competence expected of a professional. So when we're calling someone unprofessional, 
and we're saying that that is based on like their appearance. What we're saying is that like we don't believe that someone looks like that has a skill or competence expected for that role, right? So I'm doing a lot of education right now. And the education is on both sides. It's on the individual contributor that is making that conscious decision to show up authentically, but it's also on that manager, that leader, the person that's setting the rules within those organizations on what it actually means. And in a lot of these speaking engagements, they're learning that for the first time. So I think we need to continue educating folks on what it is. I think the second thing is everyone says like, bring your most authentic self to work. In fact, I've worked at companies where that is like one of the values, authenticity. But I'm often like, how are you just gonna tell people to show up authentically without even talking about like what it is, right? Because what I found in my research is that it means something differently to everyone. In fact, I believe that if you wanna create a safe environment, you have to ask your employees, what does it mean to them? So that you can figure out when they are comfortable being their authentic self, when they're not comfortable, so that you can create that environment. What I found is that, is that like, we don't really get to pick authenticity. It's kind of like a love language. I asked my mom the other day, like, mom, how did you love me growing up? She was like, what? Immediately, she was like, what? I paid for this, I paid for that. I sent you on trips to Dominican Republic, took you to Disneyland. I was like, oh, gift giving. But that's because she grew up in more poverty than I did, so she didn't get those gifts growing up. Gifts of my love languages, quality time. Those trips that she was sending me to DR was with my grandmother. It wasn't even with her. Physical touch, I wasn't hugged much as a kid. My mom was working all day, got home you know, wanted to relax, eat a good meal, go to bed. Authenticity is the same thing. It's what we've been told our entire lives we shouldn't be or couldn't be. So we are, we feel our most authentic self when we're in the kind of like rebellion of that and finally like becoming that person. So without you having this conversation with your team around like family dynamics, how you grew up, like how do you expect to make someone feel comfortable being authentic? It's impossible. As you're talking about authenticity, it's it's something that um, that I'm sure many have experienced around. It. You know, like what as you're saying, like what does that mean? And it's it's subjective to each each organization, each person, right? And I think the 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 example you just put about around your mother and you know the the barriers or yeah, I guess the barriers that you kind of grew up with and how that eventually formed you and now how you express in your most authentic way is, is super interesting because when I think about a work workplace environment, you know, I don't know how to really be my authentic self here, right? Like, m- much like you were saying, like, at some point in my career, I, I did have to spend time just like trying to analyze what was okay and what was not okay because authenticity is authenticity is subjective right yeah but I also think like we're scared to like not be accepted which is natural right like we all want to be part of a group it's biological we want to be part of a tribe like just because they don't understand me doesn't mean I have to assimilate like it's awkward on both sides assimilating sucks not being accepted sucks but we often pick the default to assimilate to then be accepted but like eventually I just be I just became okay with like not being understood and like realizing that I wasn't the problem. That's the most important thing. Like the most difficult part about like not sharing our stories and experiences is that we feel alone. When we feel alone, we feel like we're the problem or not the problem. That's one of the first steps like everyone has to realize. 
you're not crazy and you're not the problem. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a macro level issue here around like lack of diversity and overall lack of education around like what executive presence or professionalism or all these buzzwords that really hide what you said earlier, racism. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we use, we use a lot of these general terms to hide how, how, how we really feel, but you're not the problem. We're not the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So about just being cognizant of time here, right? Uh, I, we, we've gone through the inspiration, where you're at, where you're going, what your next steps are. Um, but I, I, I had to I had to ask this question because uh, once again, as I was going through the website, I thought the merch was amazing, right? So can you talk about, you know, how you're working with Latinx creators and, you know, how you're, you know, putting forth all this culturally relevant merchandise out? Yeah, I mean, everything that we do is to start a conversation that is going to empower people that look like me to be their most authentic selves because I know that that's going to help their career. Um, listen, like some people get inspired by podcast stories, by people, you know, people that look like them. I know that art is a powerful medium to get a message across. So I will continue making art that takes iconic figures and reimagines what they would look like if they were allowed to be their most authentic self. So a lot of the art really plays around that theme around like, oh, braids are unprofessional. Let's see what it looks like on AOC. Oh, beards are not allowed on the Yankees. Let's see what it looks like on them. And, and playing around with all those sort of ideas and thoughts. Um, I did take a pause on the merch just because like monetarily speaking engagements pay way better than t-shirts, you know, transparently. Cause again, that's, that's my vibe. Like and I just raised my price, but I plan on raising again. Like imagine $5,000 for an hour to speak for me versus like, imagine how many t-shirts I got to sell to do that. You know what I mean? But I think it's really fascinating with this growth of the NFT space and digital art. It's kind of like a full circle moment because a lot of the art that we created was digital. We then put on print, but this resurgence of like digital art, we're starting to create NFTs and these NFTs will again challenge what professionalism looks like in various industries. Uh, so we're coming back at like a full, full circle moment. But one of the challenging items with creating this art is that like, I'm not an artist. So I actually look to partner with um, Latinx artists. And I've been in a search forever for one that I could work with long-term. And I finally found one. The challenge around like finding the right one is that I've heard from other artists that like, essentially they don't want to work with me because it's kind of like they're, they're feeding the competition, which is something else that like, I wish we didn't have to go through. But I finally found an artist that I think I can work with long-term. Got it. No, that's awesome. If I can, I'm going to plug in uh, an Afro-Latino artist from Uptown. Uh, they have a brand called The Very Clean. If you ever look him up, you know, he does really cool stuff. But um, e Email it to me, please. I will. I will. Uh, but uh, again, being cognizant of time, I, I appreciate you taking us through, once again, your inspiration, your journey, where you're heading, and the transformation of your business models. It, it seems like you're leveraging technologies on both ends, both on the training end and both and on the on the art aspect on how that's going to create a, a community for you. Right. So um, I appreciate the time. Uh, I'm sure all of our listeners will really resonate with this story and hopefully 
take inspiration from you know your ventures and, and your story as well so so thank you again We appreciate our loyal Impact Report listeners and hope you can help us spread the word about the series and the important sustainability work of our guests. Please rate and review the Impact Report wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you were inspired by this conversation, share a screenshot on Instagram and tag Impact Report Podcast. Learn more about the topics discussed in today's episode by visiting plural.com. That's P-L-U-R-A-W-L.com. And be sure to head to greenbiz.com or impactentrepreneur.com to read a recap of our conversation. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, November 18th. We'll be speaking with Annie Agle of Code Epoxy. you can launch a high-impact, purpose-driven career in sustainability? Check out the resources page from the Bard Graduate Programs in Sustainability for access to free resources to jumpstart your career. Hear from leaders in the fields of climate change, consulting, impact finance, circular economy, and more about how they launch their careers and the tips they have for you to join their industries. Visit gps.bard.edu resources today.